Welcome to Insights and Indicators. I'm Jason Thomas, Carlisle's Head of Global Research and Investment Strategy. And in this podcast, I share observations and opinions on the economic landscape, as well as insights from research being conducted by our team here at Carlisle. Today, we're discussing the fallout from the banking panic and its implications for financing markets. And we're joined by special guest, Lauren Bass-Majan, Carlisle's Head of U.S. Loans and Structured Credit. This episode was recorded April 5th, 2023, and the discussion reflects composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports that are accurate as of that date. Before getting to Lauren, I just want to make a few observations of what we saw in the portfolio over the course of March. First, I, I think it's worth noting that it was a good quarter for economic activity. First, in the U.S., uh, we did see very strong consumption growth. Uh, the indefatigable U.S. consumer continues to spend. Much of that continues to be channeled into travel, tourism, live events, dining out. These experiences categories are now up about 31%, according to our data, relative to pre-pandemic levels. So really impressive growth, not just from the bottom of the pandemic, but relative to the same weeks, same months in 2018, 2019. We also saw uh, continued growth in Europe. Uh, Our consolidated portfolio data are consistent with about one half of 1% growth. This is very impressive relative to expectations. If you went back to August or September of last year, and looked at the scale of the increase in wholesale energy prices, ran that through household and corporate income statements, you would have expected a very severe contraction. That hasn't happened largely because of policy. Europe, through subsidies, which today uh, have reached about 800 billion euros, have largely localized the pain. So we have seen a decline in energy-intensive manufacturing, largely base chemicals, of about 30% relative to just a year ago. But much of the rest of the portfolio has performed very, very well. In fact, I don't think there's, there's really any signs from the macro data that we analyze of much perturbation in the data. That is to say that the, the time series have actually continued to grow really as though nothing has happened. And then finally, we continue to see a boom in China. Uh, through the first three months of the year, the average sales at our 5,500 retail locations across China was up about 11% year over year. At the same time, we saw a very large increase in foot traffic of about 30% year over year in March, uh, as people now are out and about thanks to the end of the dynamic zero COVID policy and broad reopening of the economy. I think the the big question today is, is really how much are things going to change in the second quarter? That's not just because of the the banking shock, uh, the, the concerns about the health of regional banks, the concerns about a credit crunch in the regional banks, but, but also there are certainly some signs of cracks in the economy, uh, most notably residential investment, which continues to decline uh, because of the substantial increase in mortgage rates, but also the industrial sector. We have seen that overall order books for manufacturers peaked in September of 2022 and, and have declined since then. And, and our data through March are consistent with about a 5% decline in industrial orders in the U.S. There there are pretty significant cross-sectional differences, Asia much stronger, but but I think that that's certainly a a worrying sign. And then going forward, to what extent is the decline in the availability of credit going to weigh on economic activity? I would say here, the the concern is is really mostly concentrated in commercial real estate. 
Uh, certainly, regional banks have a large commercial and industrial loan book, but much of that is really policy-related lending. That is to say that it's loans where they don't really take much credit risk because the loans are administered through government programs, small business administration, Department of Agriculture, et cetera. I think perhaps the best illustration of this is that regional banks lent $270 billion, equal to about 43% of their total loan book, in just the six weeks after passage of the CARES Act in March 2023, which created a government backstop uh, for, for lending to support businesses during the pandemic. So, so I, I'm, I'm not as concerned about a credit crunch there. I, and I also would say, I do believe private credit and, and market-based finance can fill in the gap. But with commercial real estate, I think here is here's the issue that, that we should be very focused on. Regional banks account for about 40% of all commercial mortgages outstanding in the U.S. And of course, this decline in credit availability to this space is interacting with concerns about asset quality. Uh, that's not only because of the increase in interest rates, which has pushed upward pressure on cap rates, which means a decline in the collateral value of structures, but also that you have offices that are only uh, about 60% full on average. So there's expectations of decline in floor space and office, downward pressure on prices, perhaps upward pressure on defaults, and of course, ongoing issues with retail and retail properties and, and, and their usefulness and ultimate value. So there is a potential, I think, for a, a, um, a, a self-reinforcing feedback loop where decline in credit availability interacts with those asset quality issues to perhaps push market values below levels that would be implied by fundamentals themselves. And, and with that, I would like to uh, invite Lauren in. Uh, the first question, again, is I suggest everyone's attention has turned to regional banks, the potential for a credit crunch, and again, the, the particular focus on commercial real estate. Lauren, you're obviously a market participant, one of the world's best investors as it relates to broadly syndicated loans. I was just wondering how you expect the fallout in commercial real estate and regional banks more generally to affect the, the markets uh, in which you operate. So, so generally speaking, regional banks don't syndicate loans into our market. So they're not a typical counterparty for a, the liquid loan market. Um, so no, no first order effects from, from the regional banks pulling back for, for the loan market. And then on the real estate market, REITs and real estate are less than 1% of the broadly syndicated loan market. So land loans disappeared after the financial crisis. It really just is not a big industry and market for, for the broadly syndicated loan market. So not a lot of direct exposure. There are some building products companies um, that will have you know, weakened results as, as real estate sales go down. Um, the real effect is the contagion in the broader financial markets. So for example, two-thirds of loans are generally bought by CLOs. About 60% of CLO is AAA-rated paper that banks like to buy. So banks that, that maybe own mortgages, will they pull back further um, from, from buying AAAs? And will that have a, an effect of slowing down the CLO market and impact the prices of leveraged loans if, if a big buyer uh, steps back? Or conversely, could there be a chance that, that you see banks buy more CLO AAAs because they've, they've performed the best pretty much of, of any investment grade asset class. It's the highest dollar price. It doesn't have interest rate duration. 
Um, and that it's the interest rate duration that, that has been causing the problems in, in the banking system, of, at least over the last month. So, so time is tell. If I had to guess, it's probably mean less deposits and harder stress tests for the bank probably means less buyers for AAAs. But we've yet to see that impact yet. So speaking about the interest rate shock, uh, you know, just a remarkable increase in, in cash yields of, of about 460 basis points over the past year. Uh, you mentioned the, the damage that has done to bank balance sheets because of, of all the duration risk that they hold with those longer dated treasuries and also, of course, agency mortgage-backed securities uh, whose duration lengthens when there's fewer mortgage originations, fewer prepayments. But of course, this is very good news for uh, investors in, in loans and in floating rate products, which, which have seen big increases in, in their yields. I, I was wondering if you could uh, talk about what, what are the yields that you're seeing today, both on the asset side in terms of the loans that you buy, uh, but then also on the liability side of, of CLO structures? Sure. So today, um, we could get paid between 8 and 10% on first lien senior secured liquid loans to below investment grade corporate borrowers. That is close to all-time highs when we're not in a correction or, or, or some kind of dislocation. And a lot of that has to do with where the base rate is because our loans are, are based on, on LIBOR and SOFR. So though we do expect deterioration in the fundamental performance of many of our companies, the coupon or the total return that you're getting to lend, again, at a first lien level, no duration risk seems really attractive. And in fact, it seems like more stress is baked into your return than you'll actually see, meaning an implied default rate for loans right now, if you, if you back into where loans are trading is, is 4.3%. We're at 1.3% today. We don't expect a huge spike to that 4.3% sure, going up. But, but not to the level where, where spreads would suggest today. So, so that seems attractive and quite rare to be able to get that, that type of coupon on um, an asset class that's literally only had three negative years in, in its history of over two decades. On the liability side, again, because we're floating rate, we're based off of SOFR and LIBOR, so high fours, low 5% base rate. Um, very different than the Treasury, uh, I'd point out. You're getting a lot more um, yield from LIBOR and SOFR than you can from the Treasury market. You could get 6 to 7% on CLO AAAs. Um, the price stability has been pretty impressive, and, and you don't have, have that duration risk. And if you move all the way down the CLO capital structure to CLO double Bs, we're seeing yields of mid-teens. But the loss history on CLO double Bs is less than 20 basis points a year. So, you know, it's it's interesting to suggest that the market is pricing a, a 4.3% default rate. So expectations of clear deterioration in the economy. I guess that's why the 10-year yield uh, is only about 3.3% today. It, it, it seems that that's unusual, though, to see AAA uh, liabilities and, and CLO structures to be yielding over twice as much as a 10-year treasury. Is, is this something that I, I, I imagine that that's fairly rare to see? And, and I wonder, again, why investors might prefer that sort of duration, that sort of interest rate risk, rather than the, the much higher returns in the floating rate product. Uh, yeah, it's very, very rare. And again, most of that is coming from your base rate, but it's an 
a way to access the base rate, which is LIBOR and SOFR, which individual investors don't usually have access to. They can buy treasuries, right? But less so uh, the overnight rates or the three-month rates. And so well, we see spreads in the 170 to 220 range for CLO AAAs, um, you're capturing all of that excess rate in the front end of the curve. Great. And then finally, you know, given this expectation for, for rising defaults, uh, you have an enormous portfolio, I think over, over 600 credits. I'm wondering what you're seeing today and, and what are your expectations for defaults going forward? So, so we have seen an increase in defaults. We expect that to continue uh, through year end and probably into 2024 as well, where we'll see defaults closer to historical averages. Um, so in that 2 to 3% range. When you think about what happened during COVID, we spiked to 4.5%. We, we don't expect a spike like that today. And, and why is that? Well, what's hurting companies is, yes, some pullback, depending on what industry you're in, in, in spending, but really interest rates being higher. And you don't immediately default because you're paying more interest. You have cash balances. Companies have come out of COVID more conservative, have more cash on balance sheet after they had a, a shock to their business models and, and cash flows during COVID. And they have revolvers and, and other areas to tap for liquidity. So what we expect to see is more downgrades and because you're going to see lower cash flow this year. And we also expect to see some corporate restructuring, meaning companies looking at their workforce, figuring out if there's ways to cut costs again, even though they cut so much during COVID. Um, so, so that's the, the downgrade and default outlook we have. On a fundamental basis, we are still seeing growth both on the top line and EBITDA from the majority of our companies, more so on the top line because we are seeing compression in margins. But there's a lot of dispersion and it depends on industry and it depends on the individual credit. So, for example, if we look at our fourth quarter numbers, we would see that Two-thirds of the companies grew EBITDA, so that's still one-third down, but closer to 60%, 55 to 60% grew EBITDA, and that speaks to the margin compression. The, the good news is that over 70% produce cash flow, and, and cash is very important um, and below investment grade corporate credit. So we are seeing the higher interest rates flow through in the fourth quarter, but the majority of our company is still cash flow positive. You mentioned the dispersion across uh, industries, and, and I'm wondering if there are any sectors that you're focused on, specifically worried about, or, or seeing things that are perhaps contrary to broader market uh, expectations. So we are seeing some more stress in healthcare, particularly, and we expect that to continue. Uh, there's margin pressure generally in the healthcare services space. So healthcare is a really broad sector. Um, we're seeing the most stress in the, in the services area where the rate adjustments from government and commercial payers just are not sufficient to offset the impact of this persistent inflation and labor costs that they've dealt with. So they're not able to pass 100% of that through, and they have limited negotiating leverage with their main counterparties. So I'd say that's that's probably the area of, of stress. Some, some secularly challenged um, businesses as well, where, where they continue to decline at a, at a faster pace during times of stress. But we're also seeing the same thing that, that you said, Jason, where the experiential, the leisure, the entertainment companies that we lend to are doing quite well in this environment and continue to grow very nicely. Great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us this month. And, and thank you to all our listeners. I look forward to talking again in May. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.